going to get out your sermon outline that says, In the Bleak Midwinter, because it's the most uplifting title I could come up with, obviously. We are taking a break from our series on uh, Exodus, uh, mostly because when I planned Exodus and did the original, the first draft, and then um, Dave Doris walked in my office and said, are we really going to do the plagues for Christmas? It was like, oh, that's probably not a great idea. So we're taking a break because that's what we would have been hitting. Um, so we're taking a break and we're going to do Christmas in Ruth uh, for the next uh, uh, four or five weeks. And then in January, we'll get back to Exodus. So you have the plagues to look forward to. Um, so anyway, we're going to do Ruth, and Ruth is a fascinating book. Ruth is a story about a few women and what happens to them, set between Judges and 1 Samuel, and it comes at the same time period uh, as them. And uh, it is a wonderful story. It's a very hard story in some ways. It's a very beautiful story. Um, and so we're going to learn a lot about it uh, as we go through it's a long chapter, and I'm going to sort of break it up. I look back, as I'm sure many of you remember, I preached through Ruth back in the fall of 2000. So you've got that right there in front of your memory. But as I looked at those old sermons, said, ah, you know, this shouldn't be too difficult. I had four sermons on chapter one of Ruth. And I was like, oh no, i got to get it all into one. So just going to have to listen quickly. So let's, we're going to go through the text as we go through the sermon, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need it as much as a few Moabite widows needed it. We need to be reminded of your steadfast love. We confess that we often attempt to make sense of life without taking the time to see you at work, without trusting in your providence, and so we take wrong turns, and we just make a mess of things sometimes. So as we come this morning to sit under your word, make it a light to our path and a lamp to our feet, showing us the way, and lead us to Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. In 1892, you probably don't remember that, a Julia Gonoprow bid farewell to her native Lithuania. And like so many others at the time, she headed to America to start a new life. And she later explained how difficult it was to leave. The day I left home, she wrote, my mother came with me to the railroad station. When we said goodbye, she said it was just like seeing me go into my casket. I never saw her again. See, 1892 was the year that America opened Ellis Island in New York's harbor. And over the next 30 years, more than 14 million immigrants passed through the gates of Ellis Island. A lot of people had their names changed. 
Because when they got there, they asked, who are you? And they said something like, well, I'm Dave from Leesburg. And so from Leesburg became your new last name. And that happened to approximately 9 million people. So there's a lot of, this was our name in the old country, and this is our name in the new country. And everybody thought it was just part of coming to America. You got a new name. And it was actually like a clerical era repeated constantly for about 10 years. But behind every one of those clerical errors and every one of those changes, there are tearful farewells on distant shores. There are stories that are very similar to Julia's. Departure for the new world meant leaving the old world behind. It meant saying goodbye forever to mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, good friends in much-loved places. And whatever the reason for leaving, the farewells were almost unbearable. And it's no wonder that the immigrants called Ellis Island the Island of Tears. On the one hand, they cried for joy over a future life better than the one they left behind. On the other hand, they wept in fear, fear of an uncertain future in a strange new land. I think Ruth would have been able to identify with these new immigrants. So we're going to see she will leave her home, she will leave her family, she will leave her people, she will leave her religion. She will leave her country. For Ruth, going to the new world of Bethlehem means leaving the old world of Moab behind. And it's not an easy decision to make. And we get a glimpse of just how difficult these times are that would force Naomi and Ruth, the two main characters in chapter 1, to make this decision to move. It's not so hard for Naomi. She's going home to her home country. But Ruth is not. And it's got to be hard. And we get a glimpse uh, of just how difficult these times are that force this decision when we look at the names. If you look at the names in the Old Testament, they all mean something. And the names here mean something. And so Ruth's husband is named Elimelech, and that means my God is king. Or I mean Naomi's husband. Then Naomi means pleasant, and she has two sons, Malon and Kilion. Malon means weak, and Kilion means frail. So just imagine those introductions. Hi, I'm weak. I'm so sorry. You know, it just doesn't work very well. And they come from Moab. They're Moabites. The Moabites are kind of like the hillbilly cousins of the Israelites. They're the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And that's reflected in the name Moab. Mo means who, and Ab means father. So Moab is the land of who's your father, as we might say today, who's your daddy. That's the name of the country. But as I said, ancient readers took names seriously. 
<clears throat> so if we listen to a passage like this, you know, with the ears of an ancient reader, this is what we would hear. Verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of the house of bread in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Hoosier Daddy, he and his wife and his two sons. <clears throat> the name of the man was My God is King, and the name of his wife Pleasant, and the names of his two sons were weak and frail. They were Ephrathites from the house of bread in Judah. They went into the country of Hoosier Daddy and remained there. But my goddess king, the husband of Pleasant, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both weak and frail died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. There's a ton of irony in this story. There is a famine in the house of bread. Her husband's name, my God, is king, and he dies. And it's letting us know that the context for this story is a context of great suffering, of great loss. And suffering is the context, as we will see over the next month, the context in which we learn to love. And sometimes suffering comes to us as a sucker punch. It's a phone call from the doctor or a note from the spouse. But most of the time it just slips up on you like it does with Naomi and Ruth. And it starts with the bleakness of exile. The bleakness of exile. Verses 1 through 5, which I just read, uh, and you have there, with the regular names. <clears throat> and we open here with the story that Elimelech has died and the two sons, Malon and Kilion, have also died. And so the woman, Naomi, is left without her two sons and her husband. But she still has two daughters-in-law. So we're opening with a very difficult scene. This opening scene of, <clears throat> excuse me, something's caught in my throat. That'll sound great on the podcast. But right from the start, we see this is a difficult, bleak, hopeless situation. And mostly it's a result of this inconsistent spiritual leadership from the judges who ruled Israel. Verse 1 tells us this took place when the judges ruled. Their spiritual failure brings divine judgment in the form of famine. People don't have enough to eat. And God is using these difficult days, these bleak days, to turn the people's hearts back to himself. So this difficulty that Israel is experiencing generally is mirrored in this family, in Elimelech's family. And so they leave the promised land. There's one thing you as a devout Hebrew person is not supposed to do. One thing above all. 
We're studying Exodus. The whole point of Exodus is to get to the promised land. And now we're in the time of the judges. And they have left the promised land and gone to Moab. And it's a signal of their spiritual condition. Like the rest of the country, they're doing what's right in their own eyes. That's the theme of the time of the judges. Judges 21, 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we're not surprised when their departure from God's land brings about death. Elimelech, Malon, Kilion all die in rapid succession, leaving no heirs and no support for their wives. So this is a story initially about three widows. And it's all tragic. And initially it centers on Naomi, Elimelech's wife. She is exiled from Israel in a foreign land, and now she's all alone. And her aloneness is not a problem merely from an emotional standpoint, but also from an economic standpoint. Without a husband or sons or grandsons, she faces destitution and poverty. Without her husband, sons, or heirs, widows like Naomi are vulnerable, uh, vulnerable economically. They're open to abuse and neglect without the provision and protection of a husband or son in what is a very male-dominated society. It's hard to describe how male-dominated this society is. It sounds so foreign to our ears today. There was an article in a Business Insider magazine that tried to explain the differences in cultures. And so they asked a whole bunch of American men, there's three women on a boat and the boat's going to sink. You get to save one. And the three women are your mother, your wife, and your daughter. Who are you going to save? 60% of the American men said they'd save their daughter. Obviously, she would have the longest to live. 40% of the American men would save their wife. 0% would save their mother. Sorry, Mom. But then, these sociologists who did this went to Saudi Arabia. And they did the same survey with the same number of men. And 100% of the men, without exception, all said they would save their mother. That's a huge cultural difference. Taking care of your mother is a cultural, societal responsibility. And in this day and age, and it sounds terrible, but to some degree, daughters were disposable. But that's the setting. And see, the problem that comes up is there's no husband, and there's no sons, and there's no grandsons. These women have nothing. They have lost their future. And many would say they have no reason to live. And elderly widows in this day and age would often kill themselves rather than starve to death because those were their only two options. 
You have to understand how different it was then. And so Naomi's looking at her future, and it's no wonder that she feels broken and bitter and bleak. She's in the very dead of winter. Is there any hope in the midst of all this hopelessness? It's that sense of hopelessness that's captured in the title of today's message, In the Bleak Midwinter. See, back in December of 1872, apparently we're going to the 1800s today, the editor of Scribner's Monthly needed a poem to fill out his Christmas issue. And he cast about for various authors to write something. They all turned him down. They were too busy. It was coming to be Christmas. So he decided to solicit a poem from the most famous English poet that he knew of, Christina Rossetti. And she had come to fame 10 years earlier with a collection called Goblin Market and Other Poems. But by 1872, she was diagnosed with Graves' disease, and she was in constant, significant pain. But it didn't stop her from writing poetry. And so in response to this request from Scribner's Monthly, <coughs> she sent a poem. And it started like this. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. I think that sets the scene for the book of Ruth. The opening is a tragedy. Now, strictly speaking, December isn't a snowy month in Bethlehem. December weather there is probably similar to the American South. Average highs in the low 60s, average lows in the low 40s. You can get a frost or occasional flurry. Uh, if you're in the deep south, everyone will freak out, trust me. But because Bethlehem sits at the elevation of 2,500 feet, they're unlikely to experience Cristino Rossetti's bleak midwinter. But spiritually speaking, at the time uh, in Bethlehem's history, you think of the time of Mary and Joseph. They were surely experiencing a bleak midwinter some 2,000 years ago. There had been silence for over 400 years. The words of Amos uh, had come true. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That had happened. They hadn't heard from God in 400 years. And so the people felt like they were still in exile, even though they were back in Bethlehem. They were back in the Promised Land. They're dominated by foreign powers, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And they're looking for this promised Davidic king, David. Who's going to be the new David? David comes from Bethlehem. And so there's a sense of bleakness, like the dreariness of winter. And God's people wondered, would God remember his promises? Would he deliver his people? Does he even care? And God's people 2,000 years ago aren't alone in asking those kind of questions. I think we wonder the same things today. You can be surrounded by Christmas cheer and the messianic promise that comes with the incarnation, and yet you can look at the landscape of your life, and it might look bleak or frosty or cold or hard. And we can wonder if there's going to be any deliverance for us in the dead of our winter. 
And there'll be a lot of people that come into this season wondering if it's always winter and never Christmas. Will God deliver us? Does he even care? And that's where Christmas stories like Ruth, I think, really help us. Because while it's not a bleak midwinter physically, it surely is spiritually and emotionally. As we pay attention to Ruth's story, we'll see the patterns of God's grace that will lead us back to Bethlehem at Christmas and on to Calvary at Good Friday, and that give us hope and joy in the midst of a challenging present. It points us forward to God's final deliverance at the end of the age. But right now, Naomi doesn't know that. And Ruth doesn't know that. All they know is it's time to go home. And when they do, they discover the blessedness of return. The blessedness of return. Naomi's been, at some degree, she's been in exile. She's been in Moab. But she's an Israelite. It's time to return. We pick up the story at verse 6. <coughs> Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What Naomi's referring to is a practice called Leverite marriage. It basically meant if there was a, a guy and he dies, that his brother would have to marry his wife. Have to, by law. Even if he doesn't like her. Marries her, and then any sons that she has through the brother would become essentially heirs of the older brother, the one who died. And that goes on. So if that second brother dies, then the third brother would have to marry both the wives. And on and on. So if you've got seven brothers, and this was actually presented to Jesus uh, in the Gospels, you know, he'd have to marry all the wives. And he'd have to have children by him so they could all be heirs to the original brother. And he had no say in the matter. And that's the situation. And she says, that can't happen here. Because I'm not going to get married again, and I'm not going to have any more sons, and there's no sons, there's no grandsons, there's no man, they're all dead. And so now Naomi is doing the one thing essential for, for pilgrimage. She's just enduring. She's hanging in there. I mean, literally just putting one foot in front of the other as she heads back to Bethlehem. And how do you hang in there when everything is hopeless? Where do you get the power to love when you don't get any love in return? When your situation is hopeless, where do you find hope? 
Well, you can hang in there if you know the end of the story. This is a case where you have to know the story or there's no hope. And the Bible tells us that there's hope when we return to the Lord. That's what Naomi experiences. She decides to return to Bethlehem from Moab. But why? Look at verse 6. It says, She heard in the fields of Moab the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God has taken the initiative. He's drawing his people back to himself. He's on the move. And this is a sign uh, that this is the case because there's food again. Could it be that the bleak midwinter is passing? Could it be that Christmas is right around the corner? The time of the Lord's deliverance, the time when the Redeemer comes. Hope returns when we recognize that the Lord's turn towards us is motivated by his love. And that's hinted at here in Ruth chapter 1, becomes clearer through the rest of the book. Here, the Lord's steadfast love is modeled in the steadfast love and the steadfast loyalty that's demonstrated by Ruth as Naomi encourages her daughter, daughters-in-law to return home, to find new husbands and serve their Moabite gods. And she gives them a blessing in verse 8. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Literally, that verse says, may the Lord show you hesed. Hesed is the Hebrew word for covenant love, for covenant loyalty. It's usually translated steadfast love in the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament word for grace. It's the dominant word of the Old Testament. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. Most often, steadfast love. It combines commitment with sacrifice. Hesed is one-way love. Hesed is love without an exit strategy. When you love someone with hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love no matter what the response or even if there is a response. Hesed is a stubborn love. You think about it, Hesed eliminates what we deal with today, sort of the touchiness that's so common in our society today. Hesed eliminates that constant search for the right to be offended. The late Jack Miller once said, dealing with the subject of how easily people are offended, he died a number of years ago. Things haven't gotten better. But he said, it's like people don't have any skin. They're all nerve endings. I thought, oh, that is so true. Hesed's the opposite of the spirit of our age, which says we have to act on our feelings. Hesed says, no, you don't. You act on your commitments. The feelings will follow. Love like this is unbalanced. It's uneven. There's nothing fair about this kind of love. But it is this love, hesed, which lies at the heart of Christianity. It's Jesus' love for us at the cross. And it should be our love for each other. It's clear by the time we get to verse 14, we've come to a turning point in this story. Ruth here makes a decision that's going to last forever. You sense that with uh, her last decision to go... uh, Back to Moab or to go on to Bethlehem. That's what she's confronted with. Return uh, to Moab 
or return with Naomi to Bethlehem. We see how Ruth responds, and we get a small glimpse of the weight of commitment. The weight of commitment. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Remember, Naomi is in grief. Much of what Naomi says is in the form of lament. Now, we get a little nervous with Naomi's lament. We're not comfortable with our sort of our Western culture. This whole idea of lament and crying out to God, it seems a little disrespectful towards God. You know, we want to put a stop to it with what we think is good theology. You know, Naomi, God's in control. He knows what's going on. Don't blame him as if God needs us to protect him. And yet, how does God respond to Naomi's lament? In an outright accusation, she says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's blaming God. Don't miss that. She's not saying, you know, times are tough. She's saying, the hand of God is against me. God responds by giving her Ruth. In the context of this whole book, Ruth's hesed love to Naomi is God's own response to Naomi's lament. What should we say to Naomi? May I suggest nothing? Absolutely nothing. We just weep with her. And I think that's good theology. To weep with those who weep. God doesn't lecture Naomi, and we shouldn't lecture the grieving and the suffering. We're not called to be like Job's friends who are probably writing a book called Your Best Life Now. Oddly enough, it's actually Naomi's good theology that drives her frustration with God. She's in anguish because she believes God's in control. If you think about it, in the West, we've lost the practice of lament. It's a good and healthy thing to lay your anguish before the Lord. He can take it. He's the only one who can. In contrast to us, the ancient Hebrews were constantly in God's face. About a third of the Psalms are laments, where the psalmists just pour their heart out before the Lord. Look at Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? When was the last time you were that honest in your prayers? In the end, Orpah returns to Moab, but Ruth remains. She clung to Naomi, using the same word uh, for cleave that echoes back to Genesis 2 in the marriage covenant. 
Ruth cleaved to Naomi in covenant love because Ruth had come to know God's covenant love, God's hesed for her. And finally, despite Naomi's pleas to common sense, Ruth has the final word. And what a word it is. Ruth's declaration of devotion to Naomi in verses 16 and 17 is one of the most powerful statements of commitment in the entire Bible. Rather than go back to Moab, she promises to go with Naomi. She tells her, don't urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. She gives Naomi a blank check of commitment. And in the space labeled amount, she writes, wherever. Not only does she commit to serving Naomi, but she committed herself to serving Naomi's family. She committed herself to serving Naomi's people. And she committed herself to serving Naomi's God. God's hesed, God's covenant love, is expressed in promises. And when Ruth says, end of verse 16, your people shall be my people and your God my God, She's reiterating God's own promise to his own people, which we saw just a few weeks ago in Exodus 6. There it says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. You shall be my people, and I shall be your God. And so God's love, his covenant loyalty, his steadfast love, his hesed, is expressed through Ruth's own covenant loyalty, and that's the heart of his turn towards his people and towards Naomi. It's what turns Naomi's heart towards home and towards hope. And that's what enables Naomi to begin this journey of love that we see throughout the book of Ruth. So we pick up here, the journey of love, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi means pleasant, Mara means bitter. She says, do not call me pleasant, call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Before she said the hand of the Lord was against me. Now he's dealt bitterly, he's brought her back empty, he's testified against her, and he brought calamity upon her. Make no doubt, Naomi is lamenting. She's blaming God. She's questioning God. She is in God's face. And it says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi is angry, she's bitter, she's grieving, she's lamenting. And reflect for a minute on how we relate to people who are grieving. We've had a lot of loss in our church family in the past six months. I've sort of lost count, but it's something like seven families have lost a family member. A couple more than one. And sometimes we find it hard to deal with folks who are overwhelmed with grief. And at worst, we distance ourselves. We don't know how to deal with it, so we stay away. 
At best, we empathize with them. We may even encourage them to go to grief counseling. And none of that is wrong. But I don't think any of that would have helped Naomi. I teach preaching at RTS, and one of my classes is on funerals. How to do funerals, how to preach funerals. And one of the things I tell my students is your job is to help people grieve. You're trying to enable grief. Don't take it away from them. Come alongside them, show up and shut up, and just be there. And if you have to do something, pray and shine their shoes. That always helps. So what we see here is Naomi's in intense grief and lament. She needs lifelong companionship. She needs uh, lifelong help, both physically and spiritually. She needs someone to die for her. She needs a savior. And Ruth sees the very core of the issue here by binding herself to Naomi for life, not just for Naomi's life, but for all of Ruth's life. You assume Naomi will die before Ruth, and yet she says, I will be buried in your place. She doesn't say, once you die, I'm heading back to Moab. She says, there I will go. Your home's my home. Your country's my country. Your God's my God. Your people's my people. And there I will be buried. Naomi's been telling Ruth all along, you have to save your own life. And in order to save your life, you've got to lose me. And Ruth responds with, no, my life is over, not yours. Ruth embraces hopelessness in order to give Naomi hope. Ruth out heseds Naomi. Can you imagine that? You know, our culture... Uh, you know, we're kind of dominated by this pseudo-authoritative word of world of pop psychology. You know, if it comes out in pop psychology, we think it must be true. You know? And because of that, we fear difficult relationships. We fear them. And can you imagine going to the bookstore and buying a, a self-help book entitled Seven Steps to Losing Your Life for Another Person? Or how about... Learn the secret of losing power in relationships. Would you buy those books? Probably not. But what we're seeing here is God does hesed to Naomi through Ruth. Ruth is God's answer to Naomi's lament. And then when, within seconds of Naomi's charge that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, Ruth's hands are clinging to Naomi in this fierce grip of love. Her offer of herself as a living sacrifice is the only answer to Naomi's pain. Ruth is the face of God to Naomi. Ruth embodies the gospel. Our face is how we reflect Christ in our gentleness and our love, our God's best picture of himself on earth. All acts of love done in faith are small pictures of the gospel. The only place of hope for any of us is that the God of steadfast love has visited his people, and not just in Bethlehem in Ruth's time, but over a thousand years later, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, is going to sing Luke 1. <coughs> he 
He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The Lord has visited his people and raised up a horn of salvation. His name is Jesus. And he was born in Ruth and Naomi's town. And he was born in David's town as the true redeemer of God's people. And the whole cry of the book of Ruth is, will you end your exile and return to him? The person in the Old Testament who does hesed more than any other is God. Despite Israel's constant rejection of him, God bound himself to his promises. And the Father's binding commitment to Israel and to us leads us to the gift of his Son. Jesus has said for us, Jesus' steadfast love for us means that he will turn his face to the cross and never look back. Just as Ruth entered Naomi's world and let the weight of that world come crashing down on her, so Jesus enters our world and he lets the weight of our world come crashing down on him. The Bible calls that incarnation. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's what Ruth did with Naomi. And that's what Jesus does with you. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks in ways that are relevant to our own needs and our own situation. And we pray for anyone here, perhaps for ourselves, for anyone who's hurting and grieving and passing through times of hardship and difficulty. Help us to discern the signature of your providence and to respond in faith and humility as Ruth and Naomi did. Enable us to trust you knowing that you're still at work and that you're acting even prior to our prayers. And for this we give you thanks. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You'll want to get out your purple insert again. This blessing is responsive. Lift up your hearts. Let's stand. I explained to some folks this week that in our church we stand and open our eyes and raise our hands. The blessings are received from God. So let's receive this blessing. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Therefore, with the angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we praise and magnify your glorious name, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Glory be to you, O Lord Most High. And let us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and go forth to love and serve others in his name. Thanks be to God. God bless you. We'll see you next week.